broadband internet service providers in real simple syndication are proud to bring you Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Carlin and Jordan's most excellent movie night. That over there is Carlin. And that over there is Jordan. And thank you so much for listening to this review of the film Enter the Void. 2009 offering that was Carlin's pick. That's correct. Sorry, Jordan. <laughs> he did not enjoy this film. Mm. The other thing, uh, full disclosure, about six months ago, I started watching this with the intention of suggesting it for the podcast. About 20 minutes into the movie, I was so bored, I turned it off and was like, nope. But I went ahead and chose it. He went ahead and chose it, and I'm like, oh. I didn't know, though, oh, no. that you had watched any of it prior. Let, let's, go ahead and, let's go ahead and tell a little bit of the backstory of how you came to select this movie. Because there was, there was a whole bunch of uh, back and forth about w- which one we should actually do. Yeah, I, I, the first one I chose will be the next film we do. Yeah, it was actually a fan selection. Yeah, and so I, we were like, oh, that's a fan selection. I'm like, okay, so I get to pick something else. And then I think I tried to pick something else. Uh, I think it was In the Loop. Yes, In the Loop, but that is like a sequel film for a, a TV, TV show. show. Yeah. So then I was like, oh, no, probably not a good idea. So I ended up... And, and this was a problem. I was looking through Netflix, and I just kept looking and looking and looking and being like, that looks awesome, that looks awesome. That's, there's so many that I want to do, it's hard to settle on one. Yeah. But then I came to Enter the Void, and I was like, you know what? That has been in my Netflix queue for a long time. I've been wanting to check it out. I hear it's a crazy film. What better thing to do with a crazy film than review it on the podcast? Absolutely. So I chose it. Uh, two and a half hour film. <laughs> so it's, yeah. Long, so I knew choosing it was two and a half hours, and I was like, "All right, I'll just have to budget my time very well to make sure I get this done." But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was. Let's let's just go ahead and go through some of the particulars, and then we can go ahead and start talking about what there is to talk about. Um, some some of the ancillary material around the movie is actually more interesting than the film itself. I'll just put it that way. Um, <laughs> the Netflix summary. Uh, when a drug dealer in Tokyo is shot in a police raid, his spirit leaves his body in a hallucinatory odyssey that merges his past, present, and future. Yes. Very and hallucinatory. Very hallucinatory. And this was a film by uh, the French director Gaspar Noé. Um, and he, one of his big films, actually the biggest one that he's known for is Irreversible, which, if I remember correctly, was starring Monica Bellucci. Yes, and I have a crush on Monica Bellucci yes. big time. I have not seen Irreversible. I want to, although I do hear it is very hard to watch because it has a very, very intense, realistic rape scene. Um, it And for that reason, it's it's heralded as one of the most horrific films, uh, reali- realism-wise. So Yeah. Um, so, I, I, think, I think Gaspar Noé does try and do films that are... Controversial are, con- are controversial. He seems to be one of well. I do know from doing a little bit of research on him that he's a big Kubrick fan. Oh, is he? Yeah, he sound, he go. cites two thousand one A Space Odyssey as his favorite movie, mm-hmm. which ironically enough is one of my favorite movies too. But <laughs> you don't like Enter the <laughs> but, Void. But I didn't enjoy Enter the Void at all. Um, 
So it it was interesting because um, the actors that they chose, uh, Noé is a, a French actor or a French director, um, and they were shooting in Tokyo, but they decided to actually use like actors who spoke English as the um, as the main cast because, according to Noé, um, the film has a lot of technical things that are tough to get through. And I'll agree with that. So they wanted to choose actors who were speaking a very commonly understood language so that it wouldn't be hard for them to understand, like, the actual dialogue that was happening on top of everything else that yeah. was going on in the film. They, they really wanted a, a, the, fo- the focus to be on the visuals of the film. Yes. Um, as opposed to reading subtitles. So, yeah. So, so, I mean, smart move in that sense, if that's what you're looking to do. Good idea to make it in English because it's more accessible. Right, right, right. So, I mean, yeah, some thought went into it. <laughs> I'm expecting, like, Jordan's going to, at the end of this, argue for zero stars. No, no. <laughs> I'm pretty sad on a one-star review. Um, so, just to discuss the actors, uh, the main character that uh, in the movie, you see most of the movie from his perspective, is Oscar, uh, played by Nathaniel Brown. And he really hasn't done a lot aside from this. Uh, he was in a movie called Blinders, which was a short film. And then he also was in a film called Druid Peak. Um, he, the woman who played his sister, Linda, is much more um, famous and much is fairly well known for her roles. Um, her, her name is Paz de la Huerta. And she was in A Walk to Remember. Uh, which was a pretty big film. She's also been on the HBO TV series Boardwalk Empire. I have not started watching that, but I hear outstanding things. I hear great things about that one as well. Uh, it's on my list. Um, I've got to get now that now that Amazon Prime has put out like The Sopranos and everything on um, on streaming. I'm like really resisting the urge to just go through and binge watch everything HBO has <laughs> ever done. Yeah. So so I've got to pace myself there. Um, she was also in the Cider House Rules. So she's done some stuff. She has done a lot of stuff. Um, there is another guy in the film who played Alex. Um, and he was basically... Alex was was the stoner, hippie, best friend, artist of um, Oscar. Oscar. And this is pretty much his only role. He hasn't done anything else as of this point. And then uh, the other... The other actor play, who played Victor, and Victor was kind of the antagonist of the film, yeah. uh, was Ollie Alexander. And he's done uh, a, a bunch of different things. He did uh, Gulliver's Travels, the 2010 movie starring Jack Black. My sympathies for him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was that bad, eh? Well, I'm not a fan of Jack Black. So, oh, okay. uh, um, Bright Star was another film that he did. And also, if you want to look up some more of his work... On Netflix currently, uh, another film streaming that has him in it is The Dish and the Spoon. Sounds interesting. Yes. It's about fine dining? I don't know. (laughs) I haven't actually seen it. So, this film, uh, Noé actually has described Enter the Void as a psychedelic melodrama, is what he said. It's a film that he worked on the script for for 15 years. Fifteen years he worked on that script, and I heard uh, from what I understand, it was only like a hundred pages long. 
well, long shots, you know? Very long shots. Very long shots. Very long um, shots. He admittedly said that it is a drug-inspired film. Yeah. He, he, by Inspired by his drug experiences. He apparently had experimented with hallucinogenic drugs when he was younger. Yes. Uh, so that that has influenced his work in, in this per- film in particular. Yeah, he had always wanted to bring... Um, his drug usage into film. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was his opportunity. And the thing is, he was very successful with Irreversible. Right. It was heralded as a lar- big success. Yes. Um, and that's what helped him land being able to do Enter the Void, which they were kind of like, you know, this happens with filmmakers. When, they're, when they show up and they're very su- successful with the film, sometimes they can kind of use that as leverage and be like, look, I'm awesome. Look at that film. It proves it. Now let me do what I want to do. And people just kind of throw money at them and be like, you're gold. Like, whatever you're going to make is going to be great. In the case of Enter the Void, major backfire. Yes. Because this film tanked. It did. Massively tanked. Like, I have the numbers. This is crazy. I, I don't know, Jordan, did you look up the numbers? Because it, it's I, I didn't really, staggering. Uh, I didn't really look up, uh, into the budget level, but I heard that he only got back one and a quarter percent of the, the amount of money he spent on it. Well, the budget was $12.38 million. Okay, so... And the return, what they made, was $754,249. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. Um... How does a company come back from that? How does a director come back from that? Yeah. Has he done anything since? I'm not sure he's done anything since. I don't since. think he has. Um, I think Enter the Void may be his death now. Yeah. Am I, ah, he might have, that's he might have entered the void. He, he may have entered his own void. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, it's like a, 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 a director who is very similar in some regards would be M. Night Shyamalan. And that he always wants to make films that are that are his stories that he wants to tell. Now he had great success with like um, the Sixth Sense, mm-hmm. which is his own film about death and the understanding of what it means to be to be dead. Um, but then he went along. He made one other film that was commercially viable in the Sixth Sense. And also, I'm not, it makes sense, I just repeated myself. Signs. Signs was another film that was commercially viable. Yes. Um, the Village was all, yeah. was all right. I enjoyed some aspects of it. Oh, I, I enjoyed the film. I thought the film was good, but I, from a success standpoint, yeah. it, it kind of flopped because people, it wasn't what people thought it was going to be. Right. And if I've learned anything about films, it's expectations are everything yes. because if people go in and they see a film that's good, right. if it doesn't matter if it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Yeah. But everything that he's done after the village, which the village was all right. The reason I kind of panicked a little bit is that it had, um, some plagiarism, plagiarism issues, um, with a book that I had read as a, when I was younger. So I, I could tell immediately what was happening in the story. So, uh, but anyway, um, everything that Shyamalan has done since then has been considered to be, has crit- critically been acclaimed as excrement. So, so <laughs> nice. you know, he, his career hasn't really bounced back, even though he's tried 
to do more accessible um, tie-in movies and um, like he did a, a film remake of the Avatar The Last Airbender series which was awful um, <laughs> I love that television series and what that movie did was just ruin it um, oh, oh, oh. but you know you, you can only do what you can do and and sometimes, like, your artistic vision is there, but you don't know how to translate it to the screen. And so, or you don't know how to make it in a way that other people will appreciate it in the same way that you do. And I think Noé kind of had that issue here where he had something that was, for him, a project of the heart. You know, something that he really wanted to do yeah. because it spoke deeply into his own personal experiences and also into his own his own viewpoint of the world. Yeah. And then other people were, were just not accepting of it. If there's anything that we've learned doing this podcast, it's that viewers don't necessarily want to see the inner workings of a filmmaker. Right. You know what I mean? You know, we saw that with Panis Cosmatos, who was trying to work through uh, therapy for himself. Yes. Um, coming out of rehab and, you know, being clean from drugs and, and trying to basically, you know therapize himself. I like to say therapize. It's not a word, but I think it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> he likes to therapize upon himself by right. making a film. It's and it just it, it's horrendous. You know, people don't want to see that. You know, if you're gonna make a film, just make it for yourself and keep it to yourself kind of thing. I mean there there's there's the the stuff that you create for yourself and you enjoy. And then there's commercially viable product. Right. But here's the thing. Enter the Void for me, I, I see it as a film that I didn't totally hate it. There were things that I did enjoy about it, and there were a lot of interesting ideas employed. Mm -hmm. And I could see it being a film that some people do enjoy, and, and quite a lot. You know, it, it, it was interesting. I think the actual rating that the film got was, like, overall on Rotten Tomatoes, a 72%, yes. which is certified fresh. Right. So there are, there are plenty of critics and plenty of filmgoers who actually did enjoy this movie. Yes. Uh, I also feel like there's a tendency that when a French filmmaker makes a film, people have a higher opinion of it automatically. Yeah, well, there's the whole... The French the French ethos of the auteur comes through, um, which is not necessarily um, a good stereotype to have. I mean, yeah. we, we've certainly enjoyed our fair share of French movies. Look at our review of Holy Motors. We both thought that film hit it out of the park. Yeah. You know, but... But this one, you know, like you said, they, they have this uh, this level that they put French filmmaking at, which might not necessarily be fair to the filmmaker. Well, and, you know, you're talking about Holy Motors. You know how on Netflix, when you when you select a film, it'll give you uh, related films that other people watch? Yeah. Holy Motors was the very first one on there. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, man, Holy Motors. That was awesome. If listeners out there have not listened to our review of Holy Motors, go watch the movie and then listen to the review. That film was outstanding. It's an amazing film. Great film. Um, I did want to say, I thought the cinematography was really good. I mean, I thought all the framing and the scenes looked great. There was a lot of space and time used throughout the film. It's two and a half hours long. It could be brought way, 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 way down, and it would have been more effective, in my opinion. But I think the cinematographer did a great idea at the direction of Noé. Yeah. Um... I mean, he did... I guess what I'm trying to say is despite Noé basically having a kind of weak script and I'm sure telling him we need long-ass scenes, 
I think the cinematographer did a very good job. His name is Benoit Deby, um, so I wanted to give him a shout out. He has also done cinematography for Sp- the movie Spring Breakers, which I have not seen, Irreversible, which I have not seen, and The Runaways, which I have seen, and the cinematography in that is really good, but that movie's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> not a yeah. good film. Yeah. I do know that um, Spring Breakers, that's the one, we, we mentioned that on the High School Musical review, because that's the one, uh, what's her name? Uh, the actress. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, yeah. Insignificant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, she, she's one of the one of the girls in that movie. Yeah. Um, so, we might review that in a future video. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of the things about the film that looked great. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the way that Japan, or the way that Tokyo was shot was gorgeous. Like, with the lights. Um, there's this one scene where they go into, a, like, a lamp store. Oh, that was and phenomenal. And it was gorgeous. Yes. The, there's just, like, different colored lights, like, all over the place. At first, you can't figure out what it is that they're right. inside of, but it just looks so appealing. Yeah. Um, it looks very warm and very inviting. Yeah, and that's what I'm talking about. Like, there were a lot of those types of things done, and it was, like, a nice reprieve from what what else was going on in the film, because it's, at times, it's a, it's a messed up film, it's depressing, it's it's some heavy stuff, and then at other times it's kind of like it plods along, and you're kind of like, can we move this? You know what? The the most interesting part of the movie is the second act, um, and the, this is a film that is very easily defined in acts by the way that the cinema cinematography is done, because in the first act of the movie, um, the first act of the movie tells the story of how Oscar goes to meet Victor. To, to sell him some drugs. Oscar is a drug dealer in Tokyo. Um, and apparently what they're trying to portray is that there is a, a big expat community in Tokyo um, who, who likes, which is very bohemian. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of um, arti- artists there. There's a lot of uh, people who are, are looking for hallucinogens to help inspire them artistically speaking. Um, so... So Victor, Victor's just a kid. He's a punk kid who who likes to get high. Yeah. Um, but some of the other characters, like we mentioned, Alex, um, Alex uses hallucinogens in his artwork to to actually help bring in his income. But um, and he was probably the least screwed up character. Yeah. In the film, oh, 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 all the things he's described as being like. Um, he's described as being a junkie, but then he's like the, he's got the a one conscience. who's got his the most stuff together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in terms of, of being a person. I mean, sense. he's a drug user, but he's it seems like he kind of has it under control. Not, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's weird to say that because you don't really have it under control if you're using drugs, right? But I'm saying within the context of the film and everyone else who's u- using drugs, he has it under control. Well, I, I think that's because he he's presented as the character who has done the most philosophical work like right. he he's presented as someone who's very conscientious about the world around him he's not a destructive user right exactly yeah yeah um but and he's not also he's not a recreational user which is something that's yes. important to point out because yes. victor victor is a recreational user and oscar is as well and oscar is as yeah well but uh, just getting back to what i was talking about with the way that the film is shot the, fir- the first part is where Victor goes to meet... Uh, no, Oscar goes to meet Victor. 
and then he gets shot and honestly I can't feel very much sympathy for how he gets shot uh, but yeah because he's yelling at the police I've got a gun I'll shoot you right well and that's something I wrote down I'm like people if you're in this kind of situation do not yell at the police that you have a gun and you'll shoot them you will be shot. Exactly. You will die. Yeah, just let them arrest you. Your life will be much safer that way. Uh, yeah. Um, well, unless you don't want to live. Unless you don't. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he might have had a death wish. But but he kind of does, actually. Yeah, yeah. And there are some small things that I'll talk about that kind of lead up to that in the film. So so Act 1 is seen directly through his eyes. And there's this great scene where you, you figure this out when he goes to look at himself in the mirror, splash some water on his face, and you can see that the cam- you see the camera looking at him in the mirror, which was a fantastic technique trick. Yes. Um, Look great. And then the second act of the movie happens after he dies, and it's essentially a narrative of his life up to that moment where he where he gets killed. And that, to me, was the part of the movie that was the most cohesive and the most interesting. Um, but um, instead of being a direct view through his eyes, it was an over-the-shoulder look. Mm-hmm. Um, which we'll talk about later because I think that was a director a directing mistake personally. Okay. Uh, and then the third the third act of the movie is is Oscar as a soul viewing the re- the, the aftermath of his death. Yes. Um, what how it affects his sister Linda, how it affects Alex, how it affects Victor, everything that happens there, um, and that's completely shown from above the viewer's perspective. And that actually feels like one long shot because there is some CGI cuts between scenes, but they try and make it look like it's a continuous pan over everything that's actually occurring. Right. And I'll tell you, I really liked the format of the film, what they decided to do. You know, they have the events that, that triggers all the crazy stuff in the film. Right. And then they go and show you all the backstory as to how we got there. And then after that, they show you everything after the big event, you know, the aftermath, as Jordan said. And I like that concept. I think it was smart. I think it was cool. I'd like to see it used in other films. Yeah. Because I enjoyed that. Because as I, I kind of wrote on my notes, like, it was an enjoyable an enjoyable way to watch a film because it slowly expands the breadth of the film, of the story. You like, know, you're getting it in little bits that kind of make you have these small revelations about what everything truly means mm-hmm. within the context of the film. Because when you see the terrible stuff happen, you don't understand the full weight of it. And then as it expands the, the storyline, you understand, oh, everything leading up to it, maybe this is why this happened. Yeah. And then everything afterwards, you're like, well, then this is why it matters. It might actually be a good comparison to an, another film that has... Um, some non-linear elements into it. Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it has a similar plot structure where you see them coming to the moment where they realize that everything has gone to hell, and then you see the backstory of the characters as they're trying to, um, as they're trying, as they're being sure. enlisted in the in, in the heist part of the movie, and then you have the aftermath with the shootout with the police. And that's a good example of a film that uses that kind of format very well yes. because it's more concise. Yeah. The problem is the formatting's awesome for Enter the Void, 
but there's so much time taken on scenes yeah. that it really should have been cut down. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I I bet they could have cut 45 minutes to an hour and, and made it a much better film. Easily an hour could have been gone from this But one. I believe that Noé just really, really wanted, he wanted it to, to be slow yeah. so that people could have time for things to sink in. And he wanted to just show, like, style and... You know, it, and he wanted it to be very drug-like. That's the other thing. So taking his time, you know. But going back a little bit, the film starts in a very nuts way. Like, the, it does the credits in the beginning, and it's too fast to even read anything. Yeah. And yeah. it's very trippy. It's like pulsating lights, and the music is very intense. It, it's like a drug-addled rave, and it's just... It, Honestly, it's too much yeah. right off the bat. Yeah. It kind of, in a way, serves as a warning. It does. Like, um, if you're not ready, you, <laughs> don't just stop. Yeah, it's like, beware all you who enter. Here enter there be the void. Yeah, here there be void. Here there be void. Yes. And <laughs> epileptics, stop. Yes, please. <laughs> please, if, if, you, if you have... You know, issues with, like, visual, spatial cognition. Please back away slowly. Go find something else interesting to watch. Uh, But, you know, the thing is that I did like that they did take that non... Because that that approach of showing the credits at the beginning is an old technique. It's something that was done, like, in the the 30s and the 40s. Um, And then it kind of... Um, this is interesting. When television came around, they would show the credits at the end because they wanted you to get hooked into the story right away. Um, at the top of the hour, they wanted a hook in there. So then, movies adapted to that show the credits at the end so that people aren't bored at the beginning of the movie and they get interested and they get hooked into it. So it's interesting that he took an older technique to to with the. Um, the way that the credits worked, but then like sped it up and made it all pulsating and and honestly the score the score was a, a bit nauseating for me throughout the whole movie because it yeah. was it, I like ambient music I like um, one of my favorite CDs when I was a music major um, and I still go listen to this every once in a while is recordings from a a, a deep space telescope that's mm-hmm. picking up like what the vibrations of, of quasars and and um, nebulae are and everything like that. And then it translates it through a synthesizer into audio. Hmm. And I love listening to that kind of stuff. And I like, I like new age music and everything like that. So I'm great with ambient stuff. But this was, this was ambient noise. It wasn't, it wasn't tonal. It didn't have anything that you could really latch on to. And it was just there all the time. And it was, to me, it was frustrating to hear. Yeah. Um, in the beginning of the film, uh, we get a reference to the title. Like, it's pretty much immediate. You know, Oscar and his sister... Damn, what was her name? Linda. Linda. Oscar and Linda are talking, and he makes some sort of comment about dangerous activities. And she says something um, about she's afraid to die. Yeah. And she said she's afraid of falling into the void. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, there you go. There's the title. It's The Void, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, the title is very, very clear because 
um, when you're in their apartment, you look across the way and there's this giant neon sign that says enter. And then they go, the, the bar that, um, the shootout happens at is called the void. And you can tell that it's a real, it's a really trippy hallucinogenic place where, where, uh, fans of DMT like to hang, hang out. Well, and also all the, you know, the main plot point of the film happens when Oscar enters the void, the bar. He goes into the bar and yes, yeah, everything happens there. So, I mean, that was a good use of the title, you know, smart to pick it that way. Um, one of the things that kind of, I liked and I didn't like off the bat was the point of view from Oscar. Like, I like the POV shots because it makes things feel more realistic. It makes things feel more personal. It's something different that you don't see a lot. Yeah. But I did not like the fact that they used blinking. They were trying to make it too realistic. Yeah. And, like, I, I can appreciate and understand that, like, you're like, we're going to make it real realistic and people blink. So right. we're going to make blinking happen. But here's the thing. It doesn't look the same. It does not look nearly the same because the blinking is slower mm-hmm. with the camera than it is with your actual eyes. And it is annoying. It just, like, chops the scenes up. It's hard to focus on yeah. things. So they should have just yeah. not done that. Well, in, in the POV shots were tough to follow at first because they were disorienting in a lot of ways. Because... Um, just to to get nerdy about like cameras for a moment, um, cameras and microphones are supposed to simulate eyes and ears, but they don't work like eyes and ears at all. Right. You know the eye the eye can focus on one thing and then completely ignore details. Like um, for example, just to describe a little bit of the room that we're sitting in, your computer desk is to your is behind you and to your right, or actually to your left, my right. Mm-hmm. Um, when I look at you though, I'm not looking at that desk at all, but if I had a camera on you, that desk would still be pretty clear in the shot. Even if it was out of focus, it, you could still tell immediately what's there. It's just like when you're listening to audio, there's this microphone that you have. And then if there's wind blowing over it, or someone says a P or a T really hard, then you're going to hear the plosive. You're going to hear this explosion that you don't hear when you're just listening with your ear because the phone will or the the phone the audio will pick up whatever sound is around it and it will indiscriminately present it just like the camera will indiscriminately present what's going on with, with the visuals so like when 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 Oscar and Alex are going down the stairs in his apartment it was dizzying yeah it, it was it, it really made me feel sick well one of the things that really stood out to me it made me think about it is not being able to see peripherally yeah it in a pov type shot like that's tough mm-hmm. it's very disorienting that way so i probably looked really stupid to anyone who could potentially see me but that during the movie i'm sitting there when i'm thinking about this and i put my hands up um to make like blinders for myself and started just looking around the room to see how disorienting it is in yeah. comparison to like being able to see peripherally, yeah. and it is. I mean, it's tough, uh, and that's what you get with these types of, of uh, scenes and, yeah. and the way that they're shot. So um, I wonder, I wonder how they actually made that happen, though. Like the actual technique that they used to make it look like it was his POV shot. 
You know, because did yeah. they did they put a harness on him with a camera, or did they um, just have like someone walk through and then have him do voiceover? Yeah, I don't know. Um, the the actual technique in and of itself seems interesting to me from a technical standpoint, but I didn't feel the the end result was that good. I think something smart that they did though they differentiated between when he was speaking aloud and when he was it was His inner, inner monologue. monologue. Yeah. Um, that he, you know, it was like kind of a little bit echoey when it was inner monologue, yeah. and then it sounded kind of normal when it was just like actual monologue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was a smart touch. You know, some people may not think of those things, but you do yeah. need to d- differentiate, otherwise it gets confusing. What was interesting was that the inner monologue was there for the in-person, sh- in the first act, but then for the second act, it wasn't really there at all. And then the third act, it, it was completely gone because he was experiencing things as a non-corporeal being where he's not in control of thoughts. He's not even really control of what he's actually seeing. Yeah. He, um, I, I do think in the beginning, the scene where he smokes his drugs um, was interesting because it was, um, it was very like vibrant color and looked like very cool and calming. But at the same time, it went too long, as is the case with a lot of scenes in in the film. Like it just goes on too long. I, I think that this film could be enjoyed if you're not sober. Like I mean, well, it, and maybe that was kind of Noé's point yeah. is to make a film so that he could be like, "This is for all you druggies out there," and for for me later when I when I get high, yeah. and I can just sit and watch this, yeah, yeah, because. I mean, the use of color in the film is very vibrant, um, and there is a certain there's a certain air to the to the um, the scene with the scenes where they use. There's this um, just jumping ahead a little bit in the movie because I thought this was pretty cool. There's this city model of Tokyo. I love that. Yeah, that I loved it. that's painted with black light paint. Yes. So then you shine. It looked so cool. And yeah. That Alex had done that. Um, Alex's roommate had done oh, that because he had right. a Japanese roommate. Yeah. Um, and so, because Alex is more of a painter and his roommate was a sculptor. And they were both using the hallucinogens to help create their artwork. Um, and th- this this model of Tokyo was gorgeous to look at um, when they shined the black, black light on there. And I do like that kind of aesthetic a lot of times. Um as as a someone who's into jam bands and, and fought, like has gone to a lot of fish shows and everything like that, I'm totally used to being around people who are in that headspace. Who are on drugs. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I, one of my favorite things that happened to me at a fish concert um, was when there was this short little guy who was going down the line and he gets to me. And he looks me straight in the eyes, and he only comes up to about my nose. So he has to look up into my face. And he goes, dude, do you have any mushrooms that I can have? You know, it's just like... You're like, uh... I'm like, no, no, just keep on keep on going, buddy. But, you know, I should have just... I, what I should have done, and maybe what I'll do this year when I go, go to the concerts, is take a bag full of shiitake mushrooms... <laughs> Be like, yes, yeah. I have some shiitake mushrooms. Here you go. This will do nothing for you, but enjoy. Um, but anyway, that's getting off point. Um, they use that kind of 
visual aspect well. And I did like, yeah. um, like when when Oscar is experiencing his high at the beginning of the movie. I did enjoy like the the visual aspect of it. It's kind of weird, but it almost kind of reminded me of a screensaver. Okay. You know, yeah, because you, you've got, like, those swirling things in there. Or if, like, sometimes if you have insomnia and you're just lying there in bed and yes, you're trying the really you hard. See. And the colors and, yeah. like, like, the phantom images and stuff yeah. like that. That was, um, that was something that was kind of transitory about it as well and kind of interesting. Well, actually, and here's the interesting thing is when you're trying to go to sleep and you're seeing those colors, that might actually be DMT. Yeah. Because, um, well, I guess this is a perfect time to talk about it. The use of the drug DMT by Oscar in the film has a very heavy tie into the um, the actual storyline, right. the actual film, but it also has a tie into No Way's life. Uh, DMT is dimethyltryptamine, which actually is a drug that's in every single living thing. Yeah. Plants, animals, humans. And in humans, it's made in the pineal gland, in, in the in brain, brain yeah. and it DMT is emitted from from your brain when you're dreaming. Right. Uh, so when you're sleeping at night, but DMT is also released in heavier dosage when you're dying. Yeah. Um, so it has a very strong meaning in this. It's it's no coincidence that Oscar does DMT, and that's the drug he's all about in the film. And they're talking about the out of out of body experiences that yes. they had and everything like that. And yeah, I had written down. DMT a lot of the times will induce like really intense like death and birth type experiences for people, yeah. which you obviously see in this film. Like there's a very intense death scene that happens. There's you know birth involved in the film as well, and it also ties into uh, the book of the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead because yeah. um, the Tibetan Book of the well, we'll talk about that separately. Let me finish with the DMT stuff. No way um, has done DMT before. DMT is in, if anyone's heard of ayahuasca, which is a drug drink um, made from some uh, some plant in the Amazon that is legal down there yeah. for like tribal shamans to use because it's used for like spiritual um, it's kind discovery. Of, it's kind of like in uh, like Native American Christian organizations. They do use they use hallucinogenics in their communion services. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah, so, like, um, peyote. Peyote is... Oh, yeah, peyote, yep. Yeah, it's used in, in uh, like, as a spiritual experience amongst Native American Christians to try and bring about a, a deeper understanding of the, the life and death of Christ. So, so I mean, hallucinogens have been used in religion all through all through history. In fact, there's a, um, there's a theory that the Pied Piper of Hamlin... Is actually based off of um, a true story of someone getting the kids high on naturally occurring hallucinogens that makes them want to feel like they're dancing. Interesting. So, so that's what's that's that's something that that can tie into the whole drug issue as well. Yeah. So Noé actually had uh, an experience with doing ayahuasca with a tribe in the Amazon. Um, so what kind of life do you live where that that's the I mean that's pretty honestly that's pretty cool I think that's scary as hell oh yeah there's no way I would want to participate in anything like that ever I I mean mean, that's just um because you know I was I was doing a lot of research about this because 
when I'm watching the film, I'm like, if this guy admits that this is like a drug-inspired film, I guarantee there's no way that like the drugs aren't the the drug he talks about DMT is not intentional somehow. So that's why I started doing the research and was like, oh yeah, this is a definite tie-in. Um, but I found that. Uh, a quote saying the heaviest trips on DMT are described as a total loss of connection to external reality and an experience of encountering indescribable spiritual and alien beings and uh, realities. Um, very, very odd. Uh, but also, there was some time ago, maybe a few years back, I had watched a documentary about DMT and the use of it. There's one on Netflix. Yeah, it's called the Spirit Molecule, DMT, the Spirit Molecule, which apparently is what they call it. There's a theory, I believe, in that uh, documentary. It's been a while since I saw it, but uh, either I read about this theory or I do think it was in the documentary, basically saying that they think the existence of DMT in all plants and animals in small a small amount is for unspoken, unverbalized um, reality communication. So that, like, when you see something else that is alive, like, your ability to acknowledge it and understand it and, and yeah, basically, like, the DMT makes reality between the two beings happen. I don't know. Really weird. I'm making a face right now that you can't see on the audio. But, I mean, the thing is... The, the the mind is a complex thing that we cannot yeah. understand. Even animals' minds. Like, you, you would think that my parents' dachshund only has a brain, the brain the size of a peanut. But that thing is, like, incredibly complex compared to any other structure within a, the organism's body. So, I don't, I don't know one way or another how brain chemistry affects your, your ability to understand reality. Not a trained... Uh, professional in that area at all, but I do think that um, the brain is one of the most fascinating things that we could talk about, oh, and, and you know, and, and the idea of how different chemistry affects the brain really makes it very, very fascinating. One of the things that was interesting was that because it is a naturally occurring thing. Unlike a lot of drugs, DMT can cross the blood-to-brain barrier very quickly and very yeah. easily. Right. So it, its effect is almost immediate. So the cool thing for me in doing this research was realizing, and audience members will probably feel the same way, uh, realizing that DMT in much smaller doses than doing it as a drug are released when you're dreaming. Like, yeah. That's what causes you to dream and make you feel like what you're experiencing in your dream is real. Yeah. Like it's a reality. You're you're doing drugs basically, but your body's producing it naturally. Yeah, yeah. Really weird, really interesting. Yeah. And well, I, lucid dreaming is something that I've experimented with. Oh, I've had lucid dreams before oh, and goodness. it's nuts. It's the craziest thing. I mean, one time just to describe an experience I had um, I knew I was dreaming, but I, I was dreaming I was in feudal Japan, and I was in Tokyo, um, which it wasn't called Tokyo at the time, that's a later name for it, but I went into this, like, uh, this, this area, and there was a 1950s sock hop. <laughs> in feudal Japan. Exactly, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Write that script. Yeah. That, that's a film right it, there. It was the best beer and hamburger that I have ever had in my life. <laughs> Was in this dream. 
I, I swear it was the best food I have ever had. That's funny. So, but I mean, the, that's the thing is that reality is something that that is pliable, and it's something that we don't really understand. We've we've agreed that this that we're experiencing communally is reality, but it's not. But it's, it's not a, necessarily the same thing. It's because a societal our, perceived yeah. conscious reality. The issue is. All, all of this, like separating mind from body and believing that reality is what you're perceiving in your mind, started with Rene Descartes and his philosophical um, writings about se- the separation of brain and body. Right. Uh, and it's just kind of gone from there. So people don't believe that what they physically experience, like in nature and stuff like that, is actual reality. They believe that where we live and how we experience things from a mental perspective is our reality. Right. When that's not like true reality, it's a, a bubble of reality, perceived reality we've created as a society. But I think one of the things that we miss so much is how much our environment affects us mentally, like it affects yeah. our brain chemistry. The fact that we live here in Maryland, just north of Baltimore, I think because of our because of what this area has geographically and the the demographic area that we live in that affects our understanding and our perception of that mental headspace that we call reality yeah you know so it's something that's that's intrinsically tied together and you know that's another thing about the movie is that Oscar is trying to escape the reality of his parents death Right. That's brought up in the second act. And he's trying to escape the reality that his sister, Linda, was torn away from him when their parents decided to put them into foster care. And that's what he's doing by taking DMT is he's creating realities that feel real to him but are not real that take him away from his his life. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing is he and Linda are both really, really trying to deal with the issue of their parents and that's why well and not only that but we see after they died you know they were split up they were loving innocent children who really liked each other they were very close as siblings very close and so he moves off does not is not able to deal with the issues of of his past of being split from his sister and being put in different foster homes yeah and from his parents dying and everything he never deals with that issue he just does drugs to escape it but he in an effort to reconnect, like, finds Linda and gets her to come out and and live with him in Tokyo, and it seems like everything's going to be good, they're going to be happy, but neither of them have dealt with their issues. No. And it is an instance of you seeing how trauma and, and events that are so horrible, especially when you don't take time to understand what happened and get past it and deal with it properly can shape you in a very negative way. That's what happens to Oscar. And Linda seems fine. On the surface. Well, she seems fine. When she shows up, it's no coincidence she has a teddy bear. No. It's showing that to Oscar, she's still the younger, you know, the the sibling that he remembers. Yeah. But also it's showing her innocence. At that point, she is very innocent. She's a good kid. And then she, living with Oscar, and then she starts doing drugs at his direction. Yeah. And he's corrupting her because he can't deal with his issues, yeah. and obviously she has not dealt with her issues. No, either. she's she's still stuck very much in a, a, a in a child mentality of the yeah. world. And then she starts stripping, right? And then she starts whoring, yeah. And it just it gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. I think 
it was interesting to me in this film because it's obvious that Oscar and Linda greatly care for one another, and they're it's like they were trying to save each other, yeah. but they couldn't even save themselves. No, no. And it, by being self-destructive, they were bringing the other one down. Yeah. And, and the thing was that they were trying to externalize their inner issues onto each other. Yes. And there's there's this one scene in the second part of the movie where they're, they're, she's just come to Tokyo, and he's hugging her, and he's saying, we're never going to be apart. Um, at one point, she, he they're like talking about how they'd never want to be separated again and he's like we're never going to die we're never going to die we're just always going to be together because they want to capture this moment a moment of happiness where they feel like they can be together and the hurt that they've experienced before will not penetrate in and cause them problems again however because they have this negative thing in their life um, they go ahead and just like you said, just vomit out horrible choices after horrible choices. Yeah. And the great thing is, you know, that that Oscar, when he moves to Tokyo, he wants to do he do, wants to do right. He doesn't want to be, you know, a drug seller. You know, he doesn't want to be someone who's like that. He falls into that because it's the easiest way that he can think of to make money and to get his sister to be with him as fast as right. he can. His intentions are good but his path is horrible yeah well I mean that, that's the thing motivation does not always lead to a, a positive end result right you know and, and and that's one thing that people have a hard time grasping is this idea that yes we are a product of what we have chosen to do but we're also a product of what other people have chosen to do right you know and so we cannot because we cannot escape this cycle we need to like be able to to come to grips, be it by therapy, be it by religion, whatever it is that helps you find a way to make sense of the world that does that isn't self harmful or doesn't project harmful views on other people. You you need to find that and you need to to grasp it and make your life better through it. In this film, it's it's a great example of something I do greatly believe that it, your environment really can shape you. But at the same time, you can shape your environment. So that's this kind of back and forth play, which I'll say it's dangerous to talk about that kind of stuff because I went to school for geography. Um, I have a master's in geography. And one of the things, whenever you start getting into that kind of talk and you say something like the environment shapes people or people shape the environment, professors will immediately be like, uh, stop it. That's don't, don't go down that path. It's too hard to prove. And it is also extremely, extremely controversial within the geographic community. I was going to say, isn't it more sociological than geographic? The thing about geography is that geography covers so many aspects. Like, it bleeds into everything. And to give you a good idea, my thesis was a fusion of film and geography together. Yeah. Because... When you really, really think about it, well, most people think that geography is just all physical geography, like, you know, maps doing cartography and stuff like that. It's not. Geography plays in every aspect of life, pretty much. And geography is in film. Physically, socially, culturally, politically. You know, there are such things as political geography, cultural geography, things like that. So, anyway, that's just a side note that that kind of talks frowned upon 
in the geography community, but I firmly believe that I see examples of that on a daily basis where people have very traumatic things happen in their past and yeah. the environment that they're in shapes who they are, but that's because they don't know how to deal with it. Nobody helps them deal with it or they know they could deal with it, but they choose not to because they choose a an easier way to deal with it. Like Oscar doing drugs. Right. And they also choose to be around people who will allow them to, who will enable them in this, in this self-destructive path. Correct. Real quick, another thing I wanted to go to was the use of the Tibetan Book of the Dead in this. Mm -hmm. Tibetan Book of the Dead is something I believe Alex gives to Oscar to read. And it's interesting because I I did a little research and that book is supposed to be, well, first of all, monks, the uh, Buddhism believes in in rebirth. um, And the Tibetan Book of the Dead believes in rebirth. and, And it talks about that. But the book is intended to be a guide for someone to guide them through the experience that their consciousness will have after, as they die and after death. So it's basically teaching people how to deal with their inner, the interval between death and their next rebirth, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting to look at it because Alex gives this book to Oscar and he's reading it and it's like, it's preparing him because he's about to die. And he's taking the DMT, which gives you um, very intense death and and birth experiences. And so basically what's happening is he's, you know, dying. He's about to die. So he's, you know, read the book. He takes the DMT, which is giving potentially giving him an experience of death, but also giving him an experience of rebirth, um, potentially. Just... Really interesting, and I think smart, how the DMT and Tibetan Book of the Dead were integrated into Mm -hmm. the film. And I guess that goes back to he was working on the script for 15 years. 15 years, yeah. He was able to find a lot of resources that way. But I would still argue, cut the film down, and it's going to be a lot better. Yeah. And and this is hard to say about a movie that's drug-inspired, but it has a lack of focus. (laughs) You know? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's a problem with... A drug-inspired film, like it's if it's truly drug-inspired, is probably not going to be totally focused, right? Um, and from what it sounds like, you know, Noé really wanted to make it very drug true, like true to some drug experiences. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you know after Oscar smokes his DMT, what you're seeing visually is something similar to what Noé actually saw yeah. one time when he was doing drugs. It was actually, uh, from what I understand, based off of images that a famous artist had done, uh, uh, based off of things that he had seen in, in a hallucinogenic uh, state. Well, anyway, I think I think we're pretty much out of time at this point. Um, I'll go ahead and, and give my rating for the film. I think you did want to talk about one thing really fast about the uh, the rebirth of Oscar in the plane, the baby in the yeah. plane. Well, no, that there was okay. So real quickly, um, one thing is that um, the reason that that Victor is the antagonist of the movie is that Oscar has severe has severe mommy issues, um, and the way that he he chooses to cope with them is to actually have an affair with Victor's mother. Um, so there is this one scene where um, where. 
they're involved in a, in in an intimate scene, and they cut from adult Oscar, who's always the central focus of each shot. You see his head and shoulders in the middle of the shot, which annoyed me because you, you didn't get a full view of what's going on. Right. But um, but then it, it it then quickly shifts to a baby. Yes. You know, and I thought that was probably one of the cleverest things in the entire movie was because through that you're showing how his loss of his parents early in his life has affected him all this way. And he's just looking for someone to, to love him and nurture him and to take care of him in ways that he cannot express. Right. So, but, but, but there also was a moment, which, which is what I was referring to, which is where he, um, He's floating. He's already been dead, and it's yeah, like yeah, his, yeah. his spirit floating. And then it goes into, into a, a plane, a plane, and, and there's, there's another a, baby. There's a baby that's breastfeeding, and mm-hmm. the baby's named Oscar. So I think showing the rebirth of another Oscar as one Oscar has died, you know, tying to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I thought yeah. was interesting. Um, so why don't you go ahead and give your review? Okay. Um, this film is very hard to watch. Yeah. It, it can be yes. Yeah. Um, because because of like we talked about there's a lot of um hallucination hallucination inspired imagery um there's the the pacing is slow um the one thing the film gets really good though is vibrant use of color very vibrant use of color there's a lot of flashing images so please be forewarned we're serious if you have epilepsy don't watch this movie yeah because it can cause you problems um or also if you get migraines. If you get migraines, that's another thing. Um, I got motion sickness watching it because yes. of the way that the film is shot. It was very hard to watch yes. all of the panning around, especially in the third act. Um, so if you have motion problems as well, don't watch this movie. Um, the also, another thing, don't watch this movie. I'm saying this a lot. But if you have, if you're squeamish about medical issues, there is an abortion. Yes. In, this, in this movie, yeah. Um, also, if you don't like nudity, if you, yeah, well, I mean, there, there's a lot of a lot of nudity, but um, essentially, this is a film that that is very dark. I I, I found it the the conversation that we had to be very interesting and enlightening, but the subject matter in and of itself is very dark and it is. and very dismal to watch. And you know, there are a few things that are thought out well. But most of it is, to me, just inescapably obtuse. Um, and, and so I, I can't really recommend this movie, you know, just in general. So I'm going to go ahead and give it one star. Okay. Um, for me, I really enjoyed a lot of the, the ideas behind it. Obviously, I talked about the use of DMT and the use of... Uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead in there. I liked the... Which are great aspects of it. Yes, I like the slow expansion on the overall story so that you're getting, you know, you start with a major event and then you're getting bits and pieces of how, how those events matter. Um, a, lot, some, a lot of the cinematography, even though the scenes were too long, a lot of the cinematography looked good. A lot of the lights used were really good. I thought the acting was solid. You know, Jordan said about the the music, it, it did become a little much at times. I do agree with that. It wasn't too terrible, though, in my opinion. Um, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the se- scenes were just too long, way too long. If you cut this film down, I feel like I could like it a lot, lot, lot more. There's a there's an outstanding film there. I think there's an 80-minute film waiting to be born from this. Yes, there is a phenomenal film there. 
you just have to cut it down enough and you know that would be a film that I think I could give three and a half four stars to but you know we're, we're judging it on the film itself and in closing I also did want to say before I actually give the star rating that the neon neon city was amazing uh, I love that quite a bit and the use of ne- neon lights and, and the neon paint were great um, in the end when there's a whole lot of sex going on in that um, hotel and every guy has a glowing penis um, I was I mean I understand that that like the glowing, they're showing the life being reborn. exactly yeah. life wait you know these are all potentially dead souls people who just died who are waiting to be reborn um, when you have the inside the vagina view of a penis going in and then coming and I was just like are we really doing this like you don't like that's too much you, you don't need to do that people understand what people are doing when they're one's on top of the other and they're naked and they're and they're moving we know we know we don't have to go inside and see so anyway um some bad choices were made in this film some really bad choices and like i said there's a great film there but in in its current state it's not a great film but there was a lot I respected about it. So, honestly, I'm right in the middle. I have to give it two and a half stars. You know, it's funny because typically I'm the more forgiving one of us. Yeah. Yeah, and we're kind of reversed in that particular stance on this. Yeah. So, I think with the two and a half, was at 1.75 stars? Yeah. One and three quarter stars overall, not great. But, you know, like, hopefully they put out a new cut of the film where they cut it down massively. And that would be really cool to watch. I would... I would not watch it again as it is, no. but if they cut it down massively, I think I would to see what it's like then, and I think it would be a lot better. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we're, we're pretty much out of time. In fact, we've run over a little bit. Uh, so if you have any comments, please feel free to, to either email us, uh, hit us up on Twitter. I'm at JD Dennis, and you are? I am at Brutal Battle. That's right. B-R-E-W-T-A-L so, battle. So we're pretty easy to track down that way. Just let us know what you think. If you have any, uh, if you have a review of the podcast, let us know. We'll be more than glad to fast track a review of whatever movie you would like to watch. You may send us emails at mostexcellentmovienight at gmail.com. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night. Our theme music was provided by Sweet Wave Audio. To find more royalty-free music for your own projects, check out sweetwaveaudio.co.uk. And special thanks to Ariana Ramos for her graphic design savvy helping us with our album art. Visit our website at mostexcellentmovienight.com to listen to other episodes, give us your opinion, and share with us other movies you'd like to have reviewed. You can also contact us through our email address, mostexcellentmovienight.com at gmail.com. We would love to read them on the air. Also, if you could rate and review the podcast on iTunes, we would be your friends for life. For sure. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to Carlin and Jordan's Most Excellent Movie Night, where movies are most excellent. This has been a Nerd Circle Podcast production. 